0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well again, good to see you guys. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Uh, today the plan, as many of you probably already know, is to talk a bit about singleness Uh, One reason for that is because today is Valentine's Day, if you haven't already been made aware of that, uh, which, as we said a few weeks ago, is the holiday um, specifically invented to exclude single people, and so we figured we'd talk about singleness. The other reason for that is because at our church specifically, uh, we tend to have a good many single people coming around. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. Maybe some of you who are single are going, I have noticed that. That's why I'm here. Um, the pool is bigger. Uh, but we actually have a surprisingly high number, at least compared to some churches, of single people coming around our church. As of our last count, about 56% of the people in our life group, uh, life group system and approximately 60% of our Sunday gathering attenders are made up of single people. And we're really grateful to have that many single folks in our church, in large part because by and large, the American church does not always do the best job welcoming and including single people, a reality that I'm sure some of you single folks in the room are well aware of. Nationwide, the average number of single people in any given American church is 23%. Contrast that with the national percentage where single people make up at least, at least 51% of the U.S. population. And really, that's just single people aged 18 to 34. So the number is actually probably way larger than that. And that percentage, the percentage of single people in our general population has been increasing steadily since about the year 1978. More and more people are remaining single later and later in life or even permanently. So, all of that to say, the fact that our church is reaching a percentage of single people that is so reflective of the general population in America is actually something we're really proud of, something we're really thankful for here at City Church. And because of that, I think we feel a particular responsibility to equip you as single people, but also all of us as a church, about how to think about singleness well. Through the lenses of the scriptures. So that's what we're aiming for today, to gain a biblical view of singleness in general. But before we get started today, l- let me just briefly address what could be a bit of an elephant in the room, and that's that I, myself, the person giving this teaching on singleness, am not single. Um, if you've been coming around our church for very long, you know that I am married to an absolutely delightful human being named Anna. We have two kids, Wit and Nora. And so maybe knowing that about me, knowing that I am not single, uh, creates a roadblock for you. It kind of makes you less inclined to listen to what I have to say about singleness. Maybe that to you feels a little bit like somebody giving a talk on the joys of being a vegetarian while they eat a cheeseburger. It just doesn't really make sense in your mind for me to be giving this talk. And I, I want you to know I understand the resistance. I really do. I understand that pushback that you might have. So let me try to help out with a few thoughts on that. First, one of the things about being a follower of Jesus is that we understand our authority as residing not within ourselves or within our experiences, but rather in the scriptures themselves. So anytime someone gets up here on Sundays and gives a teaching, they are not just giving their own opinion or their own take on a certain topic. Rather, what they're doing is unpacking for all of us what the scriptures have to say about that particular topic. That's the goal. And that means that today, this teaching that I'm about to give is is not a teaching about what Kent, the married person, thinks about singleness. It's a teaching where I, Kent, am doing my best to show you what the scriptures say about singleness, what they teach about singleness. So I'm not saying take my word for it because I know all about it firsthand. I'm saying take my word for it because I'm simply explaining and expounding on what the scriptures say. Hopefully that makes sense. But all of that said, here's the ironic thing about the passages that we're going to cover today. Coincidentally, both of the passages that we're about to read from are actually single people in the Bible talking about singleness. We're going to read from Jesus, who remained single his entire life, and later Paul, who was either single his entire life or was a widower and was currently single when he wrote what we're going to read here in a bit. So ironically, even if your belief is that only single people can speak authoritatively about singleness, you should still hear what we have to say today because all I'm doing is reading what single people in the Bible had to say on the topic. So all of that to say, I don't really have any qualms about speaking on singleness because it's never really my experience or my authority that I'm resting on up here anyway. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's see if we can just start here. I think philosophically... When it comes to singleness, uh, there are two popular perspectives out there in the world, two different perspectives on different ends of the spectrum that most people tend to ascribe to in one way or another. So the first perspective out there that tends to be pretty popular, we might summarize with something like this, singleness equals freedom, singleness equals freedom. That's the first perspective, That it is total, complete, unfettered freedom. This view comes mainly from culture at large. So the belief here is that marriage is often an unnecessarily restrictive relationship at its core. That's the belief. It's, it's restrictive of maybe your sexual expression, restrictive of your schedule, maybe restrictive of your career goals or something like that, restrictive of your time, your friendships. Whatever the case may be, people see marriage sometimes as a restrictive relationship in any number of different ways. And if that's true, if that's your belief about marriage, then that means the best thing to do is to stay single for as long as you possibly can. So maybe you date people here and there, maybe you have casual relationships of some sort, but you have no real intention of ever settling down, at least not for the foreseeable future. So back in the day, you could hear this belief that singleness equals freedom in how certain married people would refer to their spouse as the old ball and chain You guys remember this expression? I don't know if people have used that since like the 80s. Remember how people used to say that about their spouse? The old ball and chain. It's a crazy insulting expression. I don't know how it ever got started, but that reveals this belief that marriage is sort of this restrictive relationship and singleness, therefore, is freedom. So we hear this also and how certain people will say things like, well, I just don't think I could ever get married. I enjoy my freedom too much or how certain people will talk about getting divorced like it's getting released from some type of prison or something. These are all just different outworkings, different expressions of the belief that singleness equals freedom. That's the first perspective out there. The second one, I would summarize with something like this. Singleness equals purgatory. Singleness equals purgatory. So this perspective is sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum from the first one, and it assumes that a romantic relationship, i.e. marriage, is actually the primary means of obtaining happiness in your life. It assumes that that is the only or at least best way to happiness. And if that's true, that means that singleness, therefore, is just a version of hell on earth, or, or at best, it's some sort of like second tier experience of adulthood that just serves as this miserable waiting period until we meet that perfect person and get married. So you'll hear this view, this perspective communicated from a dozen different sources in our society, not least of which is your, I'm sure, very well-meaning aunt or grandma, who every time you hang out with them, ask if there's someone special in your life lately. Or maybe it's your parents who, every time you go home from the holidays, they just ask you if you've met somebody recently that you want to tell them about. We also see it in in some TV shows, I'd say specifically reality TV shows, that the plot lines just all revolve around meeting this perfect person that you can ride off into the sunset with. Bachelor, anyone? (laughs) The, the dozen other shows that are modeled just like it. And listen, I want to be clear. I said this in the first service. I had some people be like, should I not watch Bachelor? It's fine to watch The Bachelor. I'm just saying be aware of the narrative that it is communicating to you. And the narrative that it's communicating to you is that singleness is just this miserable waiting period until you meet that perfect person that you can one day be married to. Never mind the fact that even in those particular reality shows, most of those relationships that ride off into the sunset at the end of the show tend to end within a year or two after the show ends. So it's not working, is what I'm saying. It's not a helpful narrative because it doesn't even hold up to its own standards. But this is the second perspective that singleness equals purgatory. So those are really the two perspectives that I think are out there. Whether you would put it that way or not, use those words or not, I think those are the two perspectives that most people ascribe to when it comes to singleness. And and I think what often ends up happening because of those two perspectives is that real actual single people sort of get caught in this weird ideological tug of war between those two perspectives. So, single people in our world have, have a voice in one ear telling them that they just need to meet someone, and until they do, they are going to be miserable, and then they have a voice in the other ear telling them that once they get married, they are going to be miserable for the rest of their married life because they're married. Selah, right? Like, I just can't imagine two worse options to hand to people who are currently single. And so what often happens is that single people are in this awkward middle going, okay, so you're telling me there are no good options for me. (laughs) No matter what I do, I'm screwed. There are no options whatsoever. Can anybody in the room identify with the awkward frustration that is being a single person in today's modern world? I think often it creates really unhelpful scenarios for all of us. So here is what I want to do today. I want to try to offer you a third better perspective on singleness from the scriptures. From that, Matthew 19 specifically, and then we'll head over to 1 Corinthians. But first, before we get into Matthew 19, I want to just offer you a little bit of context on the passage that we're about to read, so, so that you're not walking into it blind. I want you to understand what's happening in this passage. So in what we're about to read, Jesus has just been talking about the reality of divorce, and he has essentially set the bar really high for what justifies what is a good reason for divorce in the kingdom of God. So in Jesus' mind, there are very few biblical reasons for divorce. But that sort of hardline stance from Jesus prompts a response from his disciples that eventually turns the conversation in the direction of singleness, albeit kind of in a roundabout Way. So let's take a look and see what happens. Starting in Matthew 19, verse 10. This is the disciples' response. It says The disciples said to him, If this is the situation between a husband and wife, it is better not to marry. So the disciples hear Jesus's whole bit about how there are very few justifications for divorce, and they respond like a lot of people today would respond, like a lot of people today do respond. They go, Jesus, if that's how it works, if those are the only allowances for divorce, well, then nobody should ever get married then. So do you hear their logic in what they just said? That is essentially just an ancient version of the singleness equals freedom framework that we just unpacked. They're saying that if getting married means that you are locked into this one person for life, no matter what, then it's probably better just to not get married in the first place. That's the conclusion that they draw, and honestly, that's the conclusion that a lot of people in our society today have drawn, even if they wouldn't put it in those words. So let's take a look at Jesus' response to what they just said, verse 11 in the passage. Jesus replied, not everyone can accept this word, but only to whom it has been given. So Jesus essentially says, yes, that may be, but not everyone can accept that reality. Not everyone can arrive at that conclusion that you just arrived at. Rather, only those to whom it is given. Put another way, Jesus is saying, yes, in some ways it is better not to marry, but not for the reasons that you guys think it is. Then Jesus continues to explain what he means by this. Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Okay. So a eunuch in Jesus's day referred to a male who identified as a male but who did not have biologically male reproductive organs. I should have warned you this is going to get just a bit strange for a second. I promise it's going somewhere though. So a eunuch was a male who identified as a male, but who did not have biologically male reproductive organs. That's what a eunuch was. And Jesus says there are some eunuchs who were born that way people who were born without clear biological indicators of whether they're male or female, what we today would call intersex persons. And then he goes on to say that some eunuchs are made that way by men. And now as cruel and bizarre as this sounds to us today, what would often happen back then is that if a man served in proximity to a woman of royalty, then that man would often be castrated in order to ensure that he behaved properly towards that woman. So Jesus says there were eunuchs who were born that way. There are eunuchs who were made that way by men. And then he says that just like both of those situations exist, there are also people who, quote, choose to live as eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. And this is his main point. This is what the whole thing has been building towards. What he means is that there are people who choose to remain single and choose to abstain from sex and marriage and do all of that for the purpose of the kingdom. So, in simpler terms, he is simply talking about celibate, single people. That's the category that Jesus just mentioned. Single people who choose to choose of their own volition to live celibate lives for the kingdom of God, whether that is for a season of their life or whether that is for the entirety of their life they see that as the purpose of their singleness, to build up and to serve the kingdom of God. And Jesus here sets that forward as a viable, beautiful way of life. So you might be asking after hearing all that, okay, why doesn't he just say single people then? Like why does he go on this whole tangent about eunuchs, which is quite the rabbit trail, all things considered, just to say that some people choose to live celibate and single. Well, in part, he has to do it this way because single and celibate was not much of a category in Jesus's day. In the Greco-Roman world that he occupied, you had people who were married, which was the vast majority of people, and then you had unmarried people. But most of those unmarried people were unmarried for specific reasons, not because they preferred it and they tended to live rather promiscuous lives in their singleness. There was hardly a category in Jesus's day, in people's minds, for people who choose to remain single and also willingly abstain from sexual intimacy with people that they're not married to. Honestly, not dissimilar to how today, if you told people that you were single and you choose not to have sexual relationships with people, most people today would look at you kind of funny too. Because that's not much of a category in people's minds, at least today, as it wasn't back then. So culturally speaking, it's uncommon today. It was even more uncommon back then. So Jesus, in a way, has to invent a category in people's minds for God-glorifying, deliberate, purposeful singleness. It's not a category that existed for most of them, so he has to sort of invent one. He has to reference this completely different framework, the framework of a eunuch, in order to help people grasp this very different approach to life and sexuality. Does that make sense, at least in theory? Okay, so don't miss this. I don't want us to breeze by this part. This all means then that Jesus living in a society that was way more inclined towards the singleness's purgatory mindset than even our society today is, goes out of his way to introduce and hold up singleness as a viable, beautiful, God-glorifying, kingdom-building way of life. To bestow a specific honor and dignity on people who choose to live that way. Jesus says these people are not living some sort of suboptimal second-tier existence in the world. They are making an incredible, God-glorifying choice that is to be celebrated and honored by the rest of the people in the kingdom. Now, that is different than either of the narratives that our society offers us about singleness, is it not? That's an altogether different framework entirely. So I think that leaves us with two practical questions on what Jesus says. First, if you're here and you're single, I think it leaves you with the question, uh, how do I know if I am called to singleness in that way? How do I know if that's the gifting that God has given me in my singleness? How do you know if you are being called to live single and celibate for the kingdom of God? Now, as a fair warning, Uh, If you ask that question in most of evangelicalism, have I been given the gift of singleness and how do I know if I have, you will get a wide range of answers that range anywhere from normal to really goofy and unbiblical entirely. So I'm just giving you a fair warning on that. What I want to do today is offer for you what I consider to be a way simpler way to answer that question, have I been called to singleness? Are you ready? Here's how I think you discern it. If you are currently single and you are a follower of Jesus, congratulations, you've been given the gift of singleness. I know that sounds really simple. But if you are currently single and you're a follower of Jesus, that means you have that gift. Now, you might have that gift right now for a season, or you might have that gift for the entirety of your life. It could go either way. But either way, if you are not currently married, or engaged to be married, that means God has given you, at least in this moment, the gift of singleness, the calling of singleness. He is calling you to live single and celibate for the sake of the kingdom of God, which means that Jesus' instructions here in this passage, Matthew 19, and in the other passage we're about to cover in 1 Corinthians, that they apply to you. And all of that, I think, raises the second question which is what does Jesus mean when he says this is for the kingdom of God? That's the language from Matthew 19, that these people live this way for the purpose of the kingdom of God. In what way is living single and celibate a way to build up and further the kingdom of God? And for that, we need to head over to 1 Corinthians 7. So if you still got your Bibles out, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, just for you to know as you get there, Most scholars suggest that in this chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul is essentially elaborating on Jesus' teachings about singleness, teachings like the ones that we find in Matthew 19. And I think what he gives us in these verses that we're about to read actually help us fill in the gap as to what Jesus meant by singleness being for the kingdom of God. I think this helps us apply what is meant by all of that. So let's take a look, 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 32. Paul says, I would like for you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman, a virgin, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit, but a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way and undivided devotion to the Lord. Okay, let's try to dissect everything that was just said just a little bit. Big picture... Paul here is operating from the premise that the purpose of each and every one of our lives is to serve and build up the kingdom of God. If you're new to Christianity, that is Christianity 101. The purpose of all of our lives is to serve and build up the kingdom of God. Matthew 6, Jesus says that we are to seek first the kingdom of God. That's the language that it uses there. This is the purpose for all of us. Whether we are single or married, we are called to serve and build up the kingdom of God with our lives. But Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 7 is that there are stations of life that make it easier to do that, and there are stations of life that make it more complicated to do that, to fulfill that purpose. Singleness, or being unmarried, in his words, makes it far easier to serve and build up the kingdom of God. That's the point that he's making. He says that when you're unmarried, your, your sole focus and concern can be solely and completely on the things of God. Loving and pursuing a relationship with him, growing in an understanding of who he is, loving and serving and pouring your life out for the sake of others, making disciples, pursuing justice in the world. All of those things are involved in building up the kingdom of God. And Paul says, if you are unmarried, you can give yourself completely, you can leverage your life completely for all of those things to that end. But on the other hand, he says, When you are married, it's a little bit different. Now, theologically, even if you are married, your purpose is still the same as if you're single, right? You're still called to glorify God and build up the kingdom of God. That does not change whether you're married or single. But practically speaking, if you're married, you often have more of an uphill trek to get there. You have a spouse that you are called to love and shepherd and look out for. You, you also might have kids, a family that needs looking out for and loving and serving and providing for. And because you have each of those things, you and or your spouse likely have a job of some sort to help provide for each other and the family in general. And hear me out, all of, things, all of those are beautiful God-given responsibilities, but they are also things that you cannot just brush aside to go do whatever it is that God is calling you to do in building his kingdom. You have to figure out how to fulfill both of those responsibilities, your responsibilities to the kingdom of God and your responsibilities to your spouse or your family. You have to figure out how to do that while also still building and giving yourself to the kingdom of God. It just makes it more complicated. So let me try to give you a hypothetical on all of this. Let's say that you start feeling God prompting you that you are supposed to move to somewhere in South America, dig wells for people that don't have clean water with an orphan child strapped to your back and tell people about Jesus. Let's say that's the calling that God has put on your life. Those are the things that you feel like God is prompting you to pursue. Okay, if that's the calling, If you are single, that means that the primary things you need to do are just talk to other followers of Jesus to help confirm that that is God speaking to you in that way. You need to sell your stuff, quit your job, and move to South America. That's basically it. But if you are married and you start feeling God prompting you in that same way, it's just a little more complicated than that you still need to have other people speak into that desire and affirm whether or not God is saying that to you. You still need to sell your stuff. You likely still need to quit your job. But you also need to spend some time asking some other very important questions too. Things like, okay, how is this going to affect my marriage? Does my spouse feel called to the same thing that I feel called to? And if not, who yields to who and by how much? Right? These are all questions that you have to ask. How do we navigate one of us feeling called to it and one of us not feeling called to it? Because it's not like I can just peace out on my spouse in obedience to God. That would be disobedience, right? And so I've got to figure out how do I balance all of these things? How do I explore all of these questions? Additionally, if you have kids and you start feeling the spirit prompting you in that way, you also have to ask things like, how is this going to affect my kids, This place that we're moving, is it somewhere where my kids can thrive? Bare minimum, is it somewhere they can survive if we move there? Are there schools there of some sort where my kids can grow and learn and mature as human beings? If there aren't schools there, will we as their parents have the ability and the time and the bandwidth to homeschool them? If one or both of us are homeschooling them, will we still have the time and the energy to dig the wells or adopt the orphans or whatever it is that we're being called there to do? And as we're doing all of that, how are we going to make sure that we have income in order to put food on the table so that we can survive? There are just a lot more questions that you have to ask. I could go on with more of them. But if you are married and or have a family, there are just far more questions that have to be asked And answered in that obedience to the kingdom of God. Because there are more people that your decisions immediately and dramatically impact. And those things can become obstacles to building the kingdom of God in certain ways. But hear me out these are not just obstacles in those types of extreme examples of moving to another country and serving God in that way. There are often obstacles in what we think of as just normal everyday life of a follower of Jesus. For instance, and I've mentioned this to you guys before, in my experience the past eight years as a pastor, the most common excuses I hear given for why people cannot do kingdom things are reasons that surround marriage and family. The most common reasons I hear for why people can't make disciples, can't do mission work, can't tell people about Jesus, can't be involved in the life of the church, have to do with their spouse and their kids. So people say things like, well, I I just really don't have time for community right now because we have kids and our kids have basketball games and soccer games and extracurriculars and we have something on most nights of the week, so I just don't think we can devote one night a week to being around followers of Jesus. I hear people say, well, I can't really make disciples right now because my spouse is really more of a homebody than I am, and they like to stay in most nights, and so I really need to love them well in that way and not go do things at night. This is the type of stuff that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, when you're married, when you have kids, your interests are divided. You have more concerns, more obstacles than you would otherwise. Now, Let me say as clearly as I can to the married people in the room, that's not Paul saying that those things are excuses. Are you with me on that? He's not saying those are legitimate reasons to not be involved in building up the kingdom of God if you are married or have a family. But they are obstacles that you will have to wade through. They are wonderful, beautiful gifts from God that can also be obstacles. They do make building up the kingdom more complex, more complicated than it would be otherwise. So I can speak from experience. I love my wife. I love my kids. I would not trade them for the world. But I can verifiably say that making disciples and participating in the life of the kingdom takes way more effort now than it did when I was single. It takes more intentionality it takes more planning. It takes more strategic thinking. It takes resisting the urge to just do what most other families in America do, which is everybody comes home from their job and they shut their doors from the outside world and they just keep to themselves. So none of these things are excuses. They're not reasons that get us a get out of jail free card when it comes to serving and building up the kingdom of God. But Paul is saying they are obstacles, they're things that you have to consider. When you are married, you have a more complicated path towards active participation in the kingdom of God. You have additional obstacles, additional concerns, additional hurdles. So his take on all of that is that if you are a follower of Jesus and you're currently single, you're currently unmarried, shouldn't you at least take all of that into consideration? Shouldn't you take that into consideration when deciding whether or not you want to get married one day? Shouldn't you at least consider that getting married could become an additional obstacle to fully participating in the life of the kingdom? So being married versus being single does not change what we are called to do for the kingdom or the purpose of building up the kingdom. That's the same, but it does change the ease with which we can do those things. And that's worth consideration. Now, at this point, if you are in the room and you are married, You may be a little bit confused because maybe you walked in here thinking that the Bible spoke really highly of marriage and you're like, right now it kind of sounds like the Bible hates marriage and discourages people from marriage. So you, you might be wondering, is Paul saying here that none of us should get married because it could be a barrier to building up the kingdom? The answer to that question is no. That is not what Paul is saying in this passage because he also says in this same chapter But each person has their own gift, meaning some people are meant to be married, some people are meant to be single. So Paul's take on all of this is, yes, in some ways, it is better, it is easier to be single because then there are less obstacles in your way to pursuing and building up the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean that every human being on earth should be single because some people have one gift, some people have another But all of that said, at the very least, I think this means that Jesus and Paul alike are charting a way forward that rejects either simplistic narrative about singleness from our society. Singleness is not freedom in the sense that we are free to live selfishly and wastefully and driven by every whim and desire. And singleness is not purgatory in that it is just some sort of miserable waiting period until we become fully human by getting married. Rather, singleness is a beautiful, viable, God glorifying, kingdom building way of life. That's the perspective from the scriptures. And another reason for all of this that I think is really important, it's definitely worth noting, is that singleness most resembles what eternity will be like. Singleness most resembles what eternity will be like. For this, we see this in Matthew 22. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to. Jesus here once again is talking about marriage and divorce, and in doing so, he offers this in verse 30 of Matthew 22. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage, they will be like the angels in heaven. Now, this is fascinating. Jesus is talking about the resurrection. So by that, he means the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus returns and makes all things new, what many of us probably refer to as in heaven. In heaven, in that future reality, Jesus says people will not be married. No one will be married in heaven. So catch this. Jesus is saying that ultimately all of us will be single for eternity. It's just that some of us right now are temporarily married. All of us will be single for eternity. Some of us are temporarily married. Now, some of you who are married in the room probably hear that and you immediately get a little bit sad, right? Like, I I like Anna. I like being married to her. I, I would love to be married to her in heaven for eternity. But this passage seems to be saying that I won't be. So how in the world is that good news for married people? Here's why. We have to remember that in the scriptures, marriage is always described as a picture, a sort of living metaphor for a far more important relationship, and that's the relationship between Jesus and his church. So Paul unpacks this in detail in Ephesians 5. If you want to go read it on your own time, he unpacks this whole idea. But the idea is that earthly marriages are simply meant to be microcosms of the grand marriage between Jesus and his people. Which means for married people in the room, every good thing that you experience and every good thing that you enjoy about your marriage is good because it is a reflection of the bigger relationship that it represents. So Jesus's point is that when the new heavens and the new earth is our reality... When Jesus returns and makes all things as they should be, we will not need the picture anymore because we will have the reality. It makes no more sense to cling to a marriage in heaven than it does to insist on looking at a picture of your spouse when your spouse is sitting right next to you. This is a picture, this is the reality. So in the new heavens and the new earth, we will not need earthly marriages or earthly families because we will all be caught up in the eternal realities of being a part of the perfect eternal family of God. That's his point. And so the call to all of us, single or married, is to practice living into that eternal reality in the here and now. To see ourselves more as members of God's family than we do see ourselves as a member of our earthly family. To see ourselves more as a part of the body of Christ than we do as a husband or a wife or a potential husband or a potential wife to see ourselves as more subsets of God's big family than we do as isolated insular family units, and to see ourselves more as members of God's family than we do as isolated individuals in the world. So on that note, before we're done, I would love to just speak briefly and practically to each group of people in the room, married people and single people. We'll just start with married people. For married people in the room, I want to propose that we do everything in our power to come alongside our single friends in their singleness and not to make them more discontent in their singleness. That's the big picture. Let me tell you some specifics on how I think we achieve that. At bare minimum, that means not making every conversation with them somehow about who they're dating or if they're dating. Not making every conversation about that. It means not getting more excited about them dating someone than we get excited about anything else in their life. It means that we hang out with them as much as we hang out with our married friends. It means us being honest about sharing the the joys of marriage, but also the difficulties and the frustrations of marriage with them. It, It means us giving them a realistic view of our marriage and not an airbrushed one. And at the same time, it looks like seeing to it that not every topic of conversation with our single friends somehow circles back to us in our marriage, because that's likely going to make them feel like a stranger in the conversation if that happens. Additionally, what if we as married people were to look for ways to celebrate the beautiful God-glorifying singleness of our single friends? I don't know if you've ever realized this, but nearly every celebration and every milestone in our society are for people who are married and married with kids. So weddings, wedding showers, anniversaries, gender reveals, baby showers, kids' birthday parties. If you are single, you just get your birthday, that's it. All of the milestones, all of these moments in people's lives that we celebrate tend to be for those who are married or married with kids. So what if we looked for ways to celebrate the accomplishments and milestones of our single friends and their singleness? So if when one of them gets a job or gets a promotion at their job because they've been working their tail off, what if we threw them a celebratory dinner and footed the bill for it and just celebrated the fact that they had done that? When they signed the lease on an apartment or closed on the purchase of a home, what if we threw them the housewarming party rather than waiting on them to throw it for themselves? And what if we invited as many people as we could so that every single thing they needed to make that place a home was provided for them? What if when our single friends decide to go overseas to tell people about Jesus for a season, what if we threw them the most epic send-off party the world has ever seen and flooded them with tangible reminders of how we are praying for them and encouraging them while they're gone? What if we sought out ways to celebrate singleness like our society often only celebrates marriage and having kids? And lastly, and maybe this is the most down to earth example in all of this, what if we simply treated our single friends as peers in our lives? Sometimes a friendship between a married person and a single person can almost feel like it has this undertone of pity in it. Have you guys ever felt something like that? So it's almost like it's assumed sometimes by both people in the relationship that the married person is automatically the more spiritually mature and the wiser one in the relationship. Can we just be done with that arbitrary dynamic in our married and single relationships? There's no reason for us to believe that. What if anytime we wanted wisdom about a decision that we were making in our lives, what if the first person we sought out was our single friend or our single friends? What if we asked their advice first? What if the person we most trusted to call us out on things and engage us on things that are off in our lives were our single friends? What if, when we wanted help with something, when we wanted help seeing something more clearly in regards to the kingdom, what if we asked the advice of our single friends? Because listen, if what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7 is true, there's at least a decent chance that our single friends see the kingdom more clearly than we do as married people. So what if we asked for their advice first? What if we sought out their wisdom first? I think that would help kill this unhelpful dynamic that often exists between single and married people. So married people, let's do everything we possibly can to celebrate and honor and encourage God-glorifying singleness. And finally, for single people here in the room, I, I want to once again acknowledge that at times, this world can be a crappy place to navigate the realities of singleness. It really can. And I want to acknowledge and even apologize for the fact that sometimes the church is the crappiest place for single people. We do not often do a good job of pursuing that safe place within the church. And I want you to know as one of your pastors here that I am committed to fighting against that being the case here at City Church in every way that I possibly can. I hope that we've already accomplished that in ways based on how many single people are a part of our church, but we want to continue to grow in it. We want to create an environment where there's no preferred state of existence at City Church between being married or being single, that all of them are equally beautiful, equally viable means of existence in the kingdom of God. We want to be a church that recognizes your valid, deserved, God-glorifying, vital place at the table as single people. We want to honor that, we want to seek that out, and we wanna show you how to be everything that God made you to be. Because here's what I know. Our world is an absolutely broken place. That's always been the case. For as long as there's been people existing, our world has been a broken place. But I think that is especially obvious right now. There are people hurting. There are tensions rising. There is hopelessness clouding people's eyes at nearly every turn. There are needs in our world that God wants met. And if what we covered today is true from the scriptures many of the people who make the biggest dent in pushing back darkness on planet Earth are going to be single people. He is calling you to go to the ends of the earth and make disciples of all nations, to meet the needs that he has put around you. He has called you to hold your hands against the wounds of a bleeding world and tell them about the hope that is found in Jesus. And listen, anybody who tells you that is not a valid and beautiful way to spend your life does not understand what life is all about. And so what we want to do is help encourage and equip you to fulfill your God-given place at the table in the kingdom of God. And so if you're single in the room, here's what I'm asking. Would you lead the charge? And would you continue to give the rest of us the clarity that we need to join you in doing all of those things? Would you demonstrate for us most clearly what a life looks like that is fully leveraged for the kingdom of God? And would you help show us the beauty that arises from each and every one of us giving our lives to that cause in return? If you do, I believe we'll be better off for it. And let me just lastly, um, as we close, let me just mention one more thing and that's that I know if you are single Loneliness is a very real thing. For a lot of us, loneliness is a very constant experience in singleness. And a lot of that comes from a world that teaches us that the purpose of life is perfect happiness and sexual fulfillment. Tells us that that's as far as the purpose of life goes. Those are the things that life is all about. And so I know that loneliness can be very real. You know, there's a, a passage in Isaiah that also hits on this idea of eunuchs and and something that you've got to understand about eunuchs in the ancient world is if you were a eunuch, if you were unmarried, if, if there was no hope of you participating in a romantic relationship of any type, then the reality is everybody looked at you weird. I know that happens today. It happened even more so back in the days of Isaiah. You were seen as cut off from God, cursed by God, excluded from the community of faith and from other communities. It was just assumed that something was very wrong with you if you were unmarried and you were of an age to be married. And so as as much loneliness, as much isolation, as much awkward stares as we feel like come our way for being single in today's world, it was even more so back then. And and yet, there's this passage in Isaiah where where God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to eunuchs specifically, to people in that scenario, and he says, to eunuchs that seek my kingdom, to eunuchs that give their lives away to the things that matter in my kingdom, God says, I will give them a name that is better than sons and daughters, that is better than sons and daughters. Any word that the world wants to speak over you of you being more legitimate or more of a grown-up or more of an adult because you are married or because you're in a relationship, what I'm telling you is that the gospel of Jesus speaks a better word. Because I will give you a name that is better than sons and daughters. The people who choose to leverage their entire life for the sake of the kingdom. And especially when that looks like foregoing the romantic fulfillment that our society teaches us as the entire point of life. For those people, God will give a name that is better than sons and daughters. That's the hope that is found in the gospel. Let me pray for us. Father... um, no doubt, this is, a, um, this is a message, this is an idea, all of these are ideas that run counter, um, run counter our culture in just about every way, regardless of which narrative uh, we tend to ascribe to, which narrative gets preached to us day in and day out, um, what you offer in these passages is um, very, very different flies in the opposite direction. And so God, I I wanna pray for um, specifically the single people in the room, um, that you would give them hope, that you would give them purpose, that you would give them encouragement and endurance. God, that you would give them clarity on whether or not you have this for their lives at this point. God, it's so easy to be caught up in the the back and forth of the unhelpful beliefs that are out there. And and God, I know that can lead to to a lot of discouragement. And so I I just want to pray for each and every single person in this room that you would um, show them the beauty of giving their life away for the kingdom. God, for married people in the room... um, I pray that you'd give us an awareness and a conviction of when some of the things that we say and do and the ways that we operate are not necessarily all that helpful to our single friends. Um, You'd help show us what those things are so that we can be more helpful to them. And God, through all of this, um, I pray that we would become a church family that shows off the beauty and the sufficiency of you and your kingdom and in all sorts of different ways, God, that we show it through our marriages, but also that we show it through our singleness, um, that each of those are, are equally valid and beautiful ways of showing the world around us who you are. And God, for specifically those of us who find ourselves very lonely right now, um, I pray that uh, your spirit uh, would make himself known to us in very tangible sorts of ways, that he would be with us, that he would walk with us through the daily difficulties of singleness in the modern world, and that he would give us hope and encouragement and peace and clarity. So, God, our prayer is that you would grow all of us together to embody more of what your kingdom is and what your kingdom one day will look like in its fullness and that we would practice the realities of that in the here and now. That's what we want. And So, God, would you help? Would you fill us with your spirit in order to accomplish that? In your name, amen.